This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. This week, we speak about the hypothalamus's role in obesity. I welcome on a very special guest, Dr. Stefan Guianet, the author of The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. We're speaking today about the hypothalamus's role in obesity. If weight loss was so easy as calories in versus calories out, then this wouldn't even be a conversation. It turns out that the brain is highly involved with the outcomes of weight loss. Sitting in the brain is a key region called the hypothalamus. It's about the size of an almond. It's located between the thalamus and your pituitary gland. The hypothalamus is involved with many endocrine functions, including fat loss or fat gain. If we're able to understand this region, then we can better understand how to direct approaches to obesity and weight loss resistance. I thought there'd be no better person to bring on to speak about this than Dr. Stefan Guianet. Dr. Guianet is a neuroscientist and obesity researcher who has become a leader in understanding the brain's role in obesity. He is also the founder of Red Pen Reviews, a website that distills and grades health-related books based on a number of factors. Listen in as we take the journey into the world of obesity, including the starvation response, leptin resistance, hypothalamic inflammation, high-fat diets, and the promise of GLP-1 agonists. Please make sure to like and subscribe to our channel so we can continue to bring you such high-quality programming. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Stefan, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's such an honor to have you here with us. Thanks for having me, Adam. You're welcome. Yeah, it's uh, a discussion I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And um, I know I reached out to you a couple of years ago, and I appreciate you making the time to meet with me. Um, I've always wanted to get to know you a little bit more um, and just hear about your unique path into the work you do. Um, I've heard some stories about how you decided to leave the traditional research path and go into some other areas. Um, but I'd love to kind of hear from you, like um, your kind of career tra trajectory and um, how you ended up being so focused on obesity research and some of the other work that you're doing. Yeah, so I uh, got a BS in biochem at the University of Virginia with the idea that I would take that into neuroscience, which I did for my PhD at the University of Washington. And um, I was studying neurodegenerative disease at the time. I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I, I was interested in neurodegenerative disease and epilepsy. And uh, but I always had this this um, fascination with health and fitness as well. And obesity um, 
there are a few things that drew me to obesity. One is it's a very common and impactful challenge. Um, and it is something that relates to my interest of health and fitness. And it's also something that I came to understand has a lot to do with the brain. And once I, you know, realized all three of those things, um, I really wanted to take my neuroscience work in the direction of obesity research. And that's what I did for my postdoc with Mike Schwartz, also at the University of Washington. And we were studying the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. One of its roles is to regulate body weight and, and food intake and metabolic rate. And so we were trying to understand what changes were happening in the hypothalamus that correlate with and contribute to the development of obesity. And um, around that time, I mean, I, I had been kind of having questions about whether I wanted to continue on the academic research track. Um, and I also had been realizing over time through the writing I'd been doing on my blog that there was a lot of information out there about obesity and about the involvement of the brain in body fat regulation that the public was not aware of. There was a lot of information that was not making it to the public. And for that reason, among others, there was kind of this proliferation of all kinds of theories out there that just didn't have a lot of evidence support um, in the public. And so, that got me even more interested in public science communication. And uh, at the end of my postdoc, I decided not to pursue an academic research career and um, decided at that time that I would write my book, The Hungry Brain, instead. And that was my attempt to bring some of this information from my field to the public. Gotcha. Okay. So you, you have your ear to the ground basically of what's going on out there with like obesity and the application of the research and um, what clinicians are faced with and what people are faced with who are struggling with obesity. Um, and it seems like the problem, the, the definition of the problem we're faced with is, is not as easy as some people make it sound. So like people are really trying to lose weight and not succeeding. It's not that um, the majority of people are just sitting around eating chips and doing nothing. Um, so can you comment on that? How like actually the problem is, is that the weight loss is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if it was easy, I don't think 43% of us adults would have obesity. That's the, the latest stats from the, uh, centers for disease control. So, you know, if you, if you also look at um, other parts of the survey data they've collected, you see that two thirds of people with obesity attempt to wait to lose weight each year. So probably almost everyone, I don't know about almost everyone, but the, the large majority of people with obesity have already tried to lose weight. So they, they have already gone on a diet. They've already increased their physical activity level. They've already in some way tried to lose weight and it did not work. They remained obese. So that doesn't mean that it's impossible to lose weight. I don't think that's true at all, but I think, and you know, there were, I'm sure that those people who tried to lose weight, that represents very varying levels of intensity and, you know, different types of approaches. So probably a lot of it wasn't really optimized, but 
that said, I mean, even if you look at very intensive weight loss programs, you have programs like um, the Diabetes Prevention Program Randomized Control Trial, which was a, a landmark trial to attempt to stop people from progressing from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes via weight loss. And it was a really intensive diet and lifestyle program. And people initially lost about 7% of their body weight, which is pretty good for a diet and lifestyle program. But by the end of three years, they were, I think, maybe four, three or 4% down. And then if you follow them over 10 years, they essentially rebound to their, to their former weight. Yeah. So, and that's like, that's like state of the art. So, um, you know, when you compare that to something like bariatric surgery, which is the most effective weight loss method that we currently have, you see in bariatric surgery, you're going to see a few years after the surgery, people are down by like 25% of their initial body weight. So that's like, that's the kind of weight loss that we really are looking for. And that's something that it is rare for individuals to achieve through typical diet and lifestyle means. That said, you know, I, I don't want to like discourage, I don't, it, I know that sounds like really discouraging. It is the reality. And I think it's important for people to know the reality, but at the same time, that trial that I told you about the diabetes prevention program trial even though the weight loss was relatively modest, it reduced the likelihood of progressing from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes by 58%. So there was a huge health benefit, even though the amount of weight loss wasn't that large. So, you know, that's the positive side of it is that it doesn't take a lot of weight loss to see really big benefits across a spectrum of health outcomes. Mm. Okay. So, you know, when you plug into like the Twitter wars out there. It's like, there's the calorie restriction camp. There's the uh, low carb camp. There's the intermittent fasting camp. How did we get in this mess? Like where there's so much, there's so much uh, warring as to which way to go. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I'm the be really the best person to answer that question, but I will say that, I mean, these are all approaches that cause weight loss. So it's, you know, everybody has a piece of the truth. And I think people have a tendency of once they um, get really into something, it becomes part of their identity and then they want to build it up and, you know, maximize it and, make it seem more effective and downplay the, you know, the downsides of it. That's just kind of like human nature. Um, and so you get people who are really invested in specific narratives around a specific diet because their, their, um, identity is tied up with that diet. And then, yeah. you know, once somebody's identity is tied up with it, then it's like politics or religion. There's no compromise that can be had. There's only going to be friction against other people who have different beliefs. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So uh, one of the areas that I think that you've really shed a light to um, that isn't, isn't sort of the first place people think about when, when kind of discussing this topic, most people think about 
calories in versus calories out or what have you, um, you've looked, your, your expertise is in the uh, hypothalamus um, and how its involvement with obesity and its involvement with defending against um, weight loss. Can you sort of give us the big picture as to how the hypothalamus plays a role in this process? Yeah. And the first thing I want to say is I want to bring us back to this observation that people regain lost weight. I think this is really important to understand because it's not obvious that that would be true, right? Like why, if you lose 30 pounds, why would you have a tendency to regain instead of just staying at that, at that weight? But if you look at the randomized controlled trials, the, you know, the most rigorous evidence we have, what you see is people lose and then they, they tend to regain on average. Some people can maintain, some people regain very quickly or never lose much to begin with. But on average, you see a regain over a period of years. And, um, and then they, they, they kind of like regain fast at first and then they slow down, slow down until eventually they kind of end up where they started. So why is that? Why, why would you end up where you started? That implies that there's some kind of regulatory system, right? That there's some tendency to return to a particular, you know, point that is desired by some regulatory system in your body. Not, not that you consciously desire that, but there's some system in your body that's kind of drawing you back toward that weight. So, and this is what you see over and over again in studies that restrict people's calories intake. So weight loss via calorie restriction, it tend to bounce back. And when you increase people's calorie intake, so you, you make people gain weight rapidly over the course of a few weeks or months. When you stop overfeeding them, they'll typically lose most of that weight really quick. And so there's this regulatory system, obviously, you know, that doesn't stop people from gaining weight over long periods of time over the course of their lives. And that's something we can talk about, but there is pushback that's happening in both directions. So there's this regulatory system that, you know, we've known that there was something there for a long time. People have known that, the, that there was some kind of regulation. They guessed at it for over a hundred years. Um, but we didn't really know how the system worked until um, people started doing brain lesion studies and started um, looking at the genetics of genetically obese rodents. So, you know, I'll, I'll spare you all the details because I, I think the way you frame the question, you don't want all the details. But um, <laughs> basically, the way the way it works is um, it's kind of like your home thermostat. Your home thermostat has a temperature it's trying to regulate around, and if the temperature deviates from that, your your thermostat will kick in either heat or air conditioning to bring the temperature back to where you set it. So your brain has a kind of set point. People de debate this word endlessly whether set point's the right word, but there's some value for body fatness that your brain is trying to defend, and um, and just like your thermostat measures the temperature in your house to know how to react relative to that set point, your brain measures the amount of fat in your body via a hormone called leptin that's produced by your fat tissue in proportion to its size. And that's the signal to your brain that tells your brain how much fat you have. And then your brain basically compares that to the amount that it wants to have. This is all non-conscious, so it's not has nothing to do with what you personally consciously want your weight to be. This is just a non-conscious regulatory system 
compares the value to the desired value. And if you're below, then it kicks in a suite of responses, both behavior and physiology to get the fat back. So when somebody loses weight, their leptin levels drop because their fat mass drops and their brain says, "Uh Oh, now we're losing fat. We don't want to lose fat. We were at the right amount before even someone who has obesity, their brain says, no, I liked where we were before. And so I'm going to kick in this starvation response. That's what I call it. I think that is literally accurate. Even though you're not literally starving, the perception of your brain is that you are literally starving. Mm -hmm. And so it kicks in the exact same physiology and behavior that it would if a lean person wasn't getting enough calories. So in like a true starvation situation, that is how your brain reacts. And so your hunger goes up, you're focusing on food more, your brain is biased toward wanting more calorie dense food, you find that food tastes better, your metabolic rate starts to go down. And without even necessarily noticing it, your your calorie intake goes up. And so um, that continues until the fat comes back. And so that is um, the main way that that system works. And this, I, I've given you kind of the outline. The whole thing is a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, we have more to learn. But leptin is the key signal that reports weight loss to the brain. And then once the brain hears that, the brain reacts in such a way to bring that fat back. And at that point, if you want to maintain the loss, you have to fight yourself. You're literally struggling against your own self. Yeah. Um, it's your conscious brain denying your non-conscious brain, which is creating hunger and cravings and curtailing your metabolic rate. And you're having to consciously struggle against that if you want to maintain that lower weight. And that struggle is, I mean, you can do it for a day, you can do it for a week, you can do it for a month, but can you do it for a year? Can you do it for 10 years? Right. Can you do that for the rest of your life? I think, you know, when you frame it like that, I think it's not hard to understand why people have a hard time maintaining weight loss over long periods of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, the natural question I think that everybody went to in the beginning is like, how do we get a handle on this leptin thing, you know, this, this leptin hormone. And, you know, I was reading some of the research, recent research that you've done and papers that you've published, and you've talked about this kind of uh, hypothalamic inflammation and um, this connection is kind of mind blowing to me to hear, you know, that the inflammation is a part of this, but it's, it's not exactly how we would think it is a part of it. There's, there's just so much more to it. And, you, know, you, you read it in lay pump and, and it come from a lay person's perspective. Oh, we just need to reduce inflammation, but it's not that easy. Is it? Yeah. Unfortunately it's, it's complicated because, you know, we have evidence in, animal models and in humans that there is inflammation that occurs in the part of the hypothalamus that regulates body weight that correlates with with weight gain so in rodents we see that there there's this inflammatory process that happens um that correlates with their weight gain 
And we see it in humans too, cross-sectionally, that people who are heavier have more signs of inflammation in this part of their hypothalamus. Um, and, um, and there's some other evidence from animal models that that is playing a causal role. So if you curtail that inflammation, the animals don't get as fat. But it's very tissue specific. Like this is like you like you were alluding to, this is not really the kind of inflammation that people normally think about or try to, you know, control or influence by their diet and lifestyle. Like usually when people talk about inflammation, they're talking about systemic inflammation, like what's your, you know, circulating CRP or TNF alpha or, you know, these other like whole body circulating inflammatory markers. But this is really very specific to a very small part of the body. And we don't really know what triggers that inflammation or how to address it. Um, although it can be, so in rodents, you, you can reverse it if you put them on a healthier diet for a long enough period of time and they lose weight. That, that inflammation is reversible. But exactly how that happens we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. So the, a lot of the efforts in, um, sort of mainstream weight loss strategies, I guess, you know, when it comes pertains to leptin is to kind of reduce leptin resistance and you know, help with leptin signaling. Um, is that something that has any like teeth that we can dig in? with it or is it is it sort of still kind of like a a term that really is not substantiated so i think that you know it's it's funny because i actually disagree with people on whether leptin resistance even is a helpful term i think it is a helpful term i think that it is something that is um an accurate description of what we see because in someone who is lean, um, people who are lean have a lower level of circulating leptin than people who have obesity because their fat mass is lower. But a lean person, like the amount of leptin that a lean person has is not enough to satisfy the hypothalamus of a person with obesity. So if you took a person with obesity and you reduce their leptin level to a lean level, their brain would immediately switch on their starvation response mm -hmm. because that is below their habitual leptin level that their brain is accustomed to and is looking for to as their normal. Um, and so what that means is that for a person with obesity, it takes more leptin to have the same effect of averting that starvation response, right? And so to me, like, isn't that kind of the definition of, or at least a definition of hormone resistance that it takes more to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's the way we talk about insulin resistance. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so to me, I think leptin resistance, I'm, I'm currently like in polite arguments about this on, on uh, Twitter, um, with people I respect a lot, but, um, to me, it's a very reasonable thing to, uh, to term to use, but I think uh, getting more to the meat of your question, I think that, um, I think that it is very hard to measure leptin sensitivity in humans. 
And I don't think we, you know, we can infer some things about leptin sensitivity, but I don't think we have any way of saying that diet factor XYZ or lifestyle factor XYZ is directly impacting leptin sensitivity. Yeah. As far as I know, there's not any direct evidence on that in humans. And so yeah. I'm, I'm very wary about making any kind of claims about any kind of treatment that could directly impact leptin sensitivity, even though in theory, it's absolutely plausible. It's absolutely possible that there could be things that could do it. There's just not any direct evidence in humans. And so I tend to be very cautious about that. But um, that said, I don't think that we have to totally give up on this concept or this line of thinking because I think if we step back and, we've, and we kind of put aside leptin resistance and we say, are there any strategies that can help that lower the set point? I think there are strategies that can help lower the set point. So basically allow your hypothalamus to accept and be comfortable at a lower weight. And if you want to find strategies like that, what you look for is you look for strategies where somebody makes a diet or lifestyle change, their calorie intake goes down spontaneously, their appetite goes down, they're losing fat, and they're not actively restricting calories, but they're nevertheless losing fat and they're comfortable with it. They're not experiencing that starvation response. So if you look around, there are a number of things that can be done that do that. So, you know, there are diets that can do that. Many, many different weight loss diets, uh, low carb diets, high protein diets, um, whole food, plant-based diets. Those are all examples of diets where just by changing your diet quality, you will experience a spontaneous reduction in calorie intake without having to count or deliberately restrict calories. Most people will lose weight and they will feel comfortable at that lower weight as long as they maintain the diet change. And then um, there's some other things that might help too, like physical activity, good sleep, stress management. Um, so that's kind of like what I think about. So do those things change the set point by changing leptin sensitivity? I don't know. But basically you're whether or not they're changing leptin sensitivity, you're getting the same output. And so it's kind of moot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've traditionally had this algorithm as a clinician when confronting um, weight issues or obesity, where it's like, you know, first you do like a good diet, history intake, activity logs, sleep quality, all those things. And blood work, you look for like signs of diabetes or insulin resistance and, and sort of basic things. And then you sometimes have these obese uh, people, very obese that have, everything lines up, like glycemic index, A1C, everything is really in line and they're still obese. And then it's, that's traditionally where we've kind of gone into maybe this is a leptin issue. Um, is that... Does that sound reasonable? I mean, I, I think anyone who has obesity has a leptin issue in the sense that their system is regulating at a higher level. Mm -hmm. um, 
their leptin responsive body weight regulatory system is regulating at a higher level. That is, um, as far as we can currently tell, that is such a key part of what obesity is physiologically that it's like almost part of the definition. Um, and so I think that anyone who has obesity has a leptin issue and their degree of metabolic health and insulin sensitivity probably has more to do with how close their adipose tissue is to being quote unquote full or at, you know, healthy storage capacity. Some people have the ability to store massive amounts of adipose tissue and just like it doesn't, their, their adipose tissue is so there that, that means fat tissue, by the way, for anyone who's, who's not following. Um, it, some people, it's just like, it can keep absorbing and stay healthy and stay good at its job. But everybody has a limit where their adipose tissue has too much fat in it. And it can't, it doesn't have the functional capacity to keep absorbing excess energy. And at that point, you're going to get spillover onto all your other tissues. You're going to get excess energy exposure onto your liver and your muscle tissue and your pancreas. You get insulin, uh, insulin resistance. You get uh, insulin secreting beta cell dysfunction. So you're not getting, um, we could get into more details, but basically you start to lose um, your pancreas's ability to secrete insulin appropriately. And then eventually it just kind of, wraps out entirely. Um, and so I think that is kind of the story that differentiates metabolically healthy obesity from metabolically unhealthy rather than the leptin side of it. Um, as far as my current understanding. Oh, that's great. Thanks for clearing that up. That's, that's very helpful. So let's talk about, let's talk about apples and fruit and (laughs) <laughs> an apple a day. <laughs> so you wrote a really nice, um, uh, it was a, a review article um, looking at a number of studies that looked at uh, the impact of having like fresh fruit on weight, um, fresh fruit in the diet. And so like, there's this kind of concept of like fruit might be, you know, stay away from fruit if you have a weight problem, because it's like, has a lot of sugar in it or a lot of uh, um, glucose uh fructose, I should say. Um, so the, um, you sort of dove into that and I would love for you to share with our audience this concept because it, it really leads into this question of processed food versus whole foods and how over time um, this may be impacting this issue. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. I think that's a good thing to, to discuss. So, you know, there's this controversial or controversy, I should say, about sugar, where some people are just like, sugar is bad. We shouldn't eat any sugar. So maybe we shouldn't eat fruit. That would be like a kind of on the more extreme end of, of that kind of perspective. Um, and then on the other side, I don't, I don't think there are very, very many people who are saying like refined sugar is not a problem at all, but aside from maybe like in the food industry, but, um, there are other people who would say, well, the sugar is mostly about the calories and whole fresh fruit is, uh, not that high. It's not very dense in calories and it has, you know, fiber and nutrients and all that. So there's, there's kind of like these two camps. 
And you could make arguments for either camp, right? I mean, you can make an argument for almost anything if you dig around in the scientific literature. And so what I wanted to do was really look empirically at the studies that have actually directly measured uh, calorie intake and body weight outcomes with diets higher or lower in fruit. That's really the best way to resolve this, this controversy. And so I did a search for um, three things. One is randomized controlled trials um, of uh, studies that compared higher, higher to lower fruit diets on calorie intake. One search that was on randomized controlled trials um, that compared diets of different fruit intake on body weight. So calorie intake, body weight. And then the last one was observational studies that report body weight by level of fruit intake. And what I saw was very consistent across all three types of evidence um, that increasing the amount of fruit in the diet leads to either no change in calorie intake or uh, decreased calorie intake. And similarly, either no change or a decrease in body weight. So it's not like the world's best weight loss aid, but right. at the same time, it doesn't cause weight gain either. If anything, it's causing weight loss. And so, you know, and if you look at the properties, if you look at the studies that have um, compared the um, how much satiety or fullness different foods impart, fruit is up there high on the list. Fruit is, I'm talking about fresh whole fruit, you know, mm -hmm. not dried, not canned, not fruit, fruit cocktail, <laughs> not fruit cocktail. Yeah. Do you remember so, that stuff? <laughs> That's the corn syrup or the syrupy based fruit that they used to sell. And uh, it was just like, yeah, it was very. Okay. Sweet. All right. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, you know, like basically if you cluster foods, if foods in terms of their satiety impacts, they cluster out as calorie dense, highly processed versus lower calorie density, unprocessed and fruit clusters with the unprocessed stuff. So it's in there with like meats and uh, whole grains, beans, eggs, like, you know, the foods that we tend to view as healthier and more slimming relative to the, you know, more processed calorie dense items. And so anyway, yeah, like bottom line is that fruit is not fattening. And, and, you know, I don't want to say that like there's, you know, I think if, if you have someone, for example, who is trying to do, there's some context here. If you have someone who's trying to do a very low carbohydrate diet, like a ketogenic diet, then yeah, they probably should cut out fruit because that, because their weight loss, um, strategy is to cut carbohydrate to the very lowest level. And so if that's what you're trying to do, eating a lot of fruit is obviously not going to allow you to achieve that goal. So in that sense, I think that 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 is a context where it would hold you back. But for typical people eating typical diets, um, I think that is more what this type of study addresses. And all the evidence we have pretty consistently shows that it's not fattening. And if anything, it's slightly slimming. Yeah. You know, I would, I want to just pause for a second. 
um, and just comment on the observation, just hearing you talk, which is really uh, refreshing to me, is that you don't seem to be sort of pushing one particular road. Like, it seems like you have this sense that, um, you know, if the brain is being regulated in a certain way or the hypothalamus is being regulated, so the outcome could follow a similar trajectory. Um, and it seems like you're very comfortable with that um, versus like, well, if you do it this way, like even mentioning keto diet, you know, versus like a whole foods diet, which is kind of two really sometimes dramatically different things, according to, uh, depending on who you're talking to, um, you know, you, is that fair to say that you're just, you're sort of comfortable with the road? Yeah, I try to be diet agnostic um, to some extent. I mean, not to say that I would never recognize like differences between diets, but um, I try to not get caught up in any particular diet and, uh, you know, look at it all at a high level and yeah. That's, yeah, it's really refreshing um, to, because it, I think it allows us to really learn, you know, learn about um, this in a more holistic way. Um, so the, I am going to pick on one, one part of this because this kind of consistently comes up in the research is the, like a high fat diet. Okay. So I think people are confused by this, you know, because when you read the research, HFD is all over the place. Uh, HF high fat diet does all this terrible stuff, but then, <laughs> you know, then you talk about the Mediterranean diet and the ketogenic diet, and that could be considered a high fat diet. So what are we really talking about when we see these comments about HFD? Yeah, yeah, this is a good question. Um, so yeah, a couple points here. So high fat diet is really shorthand for a specific type of diet that is high in fat, but it's not only high in fat. It is a calorie dense refined rodent pellet that typically it's semi-purified which means it's not made from whole ingredients it's made from refined ingredients and um typically the fat component is somewhere in the range of 45 to 60 percent calories usually it's lard maybe with some soybean oil then you have um cornstarch a little bit of sugar and casein as the protein. That would be like a typical rodent pellet. So that's called high fat diet, which obviously like there's, there's kind of, when you read that there's an implication that the fact that it's high in fat is the reason why it's doing all these bad things to the animals, right? Cause it makes them super fat and un very unhealthy. Um, and they love it by the way, they love the taste of it. <laughs> um, but it's not just high in fat, right? I mean, this is a completely different diet than what they normally eat, which is an unrefined, low-fat pellet made from mostly whole grains, soybean, a little bit of fish meal, vitamins and minerals. So, like, it's, it differs in many different ways from other types of, from the, you know, typical standard rodent pellet. So, I think... Um, you have to call it something, so they call it high-fat diet. 
but I don't think you can necessarily just fo just focus on the, the fat element. Um, so a couple of comments to, to kind of take this further. I think it's useful to note that ketogenic diets work similarly in rodents as in humans. So if you put a rat or a mouse that has obesity on a ketogenic diet, typically they will lose weight. Or if you put them on one for their entire lives, they will gain less weight over the course of their lives. Some studies show that they will live longer. Some studies show that they won't, but it doesn't really hurt their health to be on a ketogenic diet. Um, if anything, it improves their health. And so I think that, you know, I think rodents are actually not as different from humans as, as we like to think. So if you look, if you go back and look at the older human randomized controlled trials on diets, what you see is that, and the evidence isn't, isn't great or that abundant by the way, but it's, it's decent enough, I think, to support the statements that I'm going to make. If you take somebody's normal diet and you just give them like fattier versions of what they're already eating, typically their calorie intake will go up and their body weight will go up. Whereas if you give them less fatty versions of the stuff they're already eating, their calorie intake will go down and their body in, body weight will go down. And so like, I think they're actually, it's similar there to rodents too. The fat actually does matter, but I think there's a really big distinction to be made here between diets that are high in fat because they're restricting carbohydrate versus diets that are unrestricted but just have a ton of extra fat in them. I think that's really the key distinction because when you have a diet that's unrestricted, like the one I was just describing, you just make everything fattier, but the bread's still on the table, the potatoes are still on the plate. That's the kind of scenario where in rodents or humans, you're going to get fat gain. If instead you're saying, well, I'm taking away the bread, I'm taking away the potatoes, and I have to increase my fat intake somewhat so I'm not, you know, like, so I get enough calories, that's a different scenario. And that scenario tends to lead to weight loss, both in humans and in rodents. And so I think, I think that's, it might seem kind of like a fine point, but I think it's important enough that it actually reverses the direction of the effect size. So I think it's actually a really important point. Yeah. I always like when, when research articles are referring to HFD and they put a little icon of like a Big Mac and fries next to it, like that works for me. Cause then it's like, okay, they're not putting a Mediterranean style diet icon or, um, you know, so I, I've seen that before. It's like, yeah, that's what we're referring to. Like a big, in the, in the, in the human world, that would be like eating Big Macs and fries pretty much every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think, yeah, it's it probably even worse than Big Mac and fries. But um, I think that, yeah, so when I wrote my papers, I tended, I tended to try to refer to it as a semi-purified high-fat diet or some other, like, qualifier so that people could understand that it's not just regular rodent chow that fat has been added to it's a completely different type of diet that differs in many ways from ordinary rodent chow. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. That really helps. And um, also, again, leads us to kind of a view of flexibility in helping people find a lifestyle and a diet 
and a way of living that they can sustain. Because I think, you know, that's sort of one of my takeaways from hearing you, um, and maybe you can comment on this, is that, like, if you're going to do dietary changes, you might as well pick one that you, you know, that you feel like, if, if this is it, if this works, this is something you can stick with for the long run versus like something that just doesn't appeal to you at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sorry. Was there a question in there? Yeah. I just wonder if you could comment on that. Cause like, it seems like if you're choosing a diet, um, for a weight loss, um, would you think that, um, would you think that the discuss, there needs to be a discussion about which one of these choices seems most sustainable versus yeah. just jumping into something because it's like 30 days of this, that, the other, you can lose all this weight? Yeah, I mean, adherence is key. So how well a person actually sticks to the diet is key. And if it's hard for them to stick to the diet, then their probability of being able to stick to it is, is reduced. You know, like we're not machines. We have a limited amount of willpower that we can apply to our lives. And if you set up a situation where someone has to struggle every day, then it's just not, that's not how you're going to get the most effectiveness. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think people absolutely should choose a diet that is, um, where they can get the most results for the least, the least amount of effort. And I think that one way to think about this is I like to frame it in terms of this struggle between your non-conscious brain and your conscious brain. How hard is that struggle on this particular diet? Are, do you feel like you're just eating to your appetite and losing weight and staying where you want to be as long as you stick with the diet? Or do you feel like you're hungry all the time and cold all the time and, you know, constantly having to battle yourself not to like tear open a bag of, you know, chips or cookies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so to me, I like to try to think about how do we kind of appease the non-conscious brain as much as we can to, to make it as easy as possible. Cause I think that's what it's all about is making it as easy as possible. Choose, you know, choose something that works for your life and try to make it as easy as possible on yourself so that you can sustain it. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So there has been an emergence of some treatments, um, that are available now. Um, and, actually practitioners, I think are even most excited to give, you know, recommendations to take, uh, to, for people with weight issues to try uh, GLP-1 agonist, um, treatments. And, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and the direction that's going. Yeah. Um, so I'm super bullish on the GLP-1 agonists. Um, I've written a couple of articles on it, as you know, um, one, is uh titled the future of weight loss and that's in the journal um works in progress and then i work i wrote another one um for the metaculous journal that's along similar lines and basically um yeah i i, I could go on and on about this but I'll, I'll try to keep it concise um i think that we are 
on the verge. Let me start by saying that I have no conflicts of interest related to the pharmaceutical industry. So my enthusiasm is purely my own. I'm not driving a pharma, you know, Lamborghini. Um, So I think we are on the verge of a sea change in the medical management of obesity. I think that's starting to happen and it's starting to happen as a result of these new drugs that the first one has been FDA approved last June. It's called Wegovy um, or semaglutide. And um, these, and there are many others that are in the pipeline being developed that are equally, if not more impressive. And these are drugs that came out of the basic research pipeline. So to understand how important this is, if you look back at weight loss drugs from decades prior, most of those were just discovered haphazardly. They were not discovered because we understood how weight regulation works and we found drugs to target those circuits in the brain. They were just like psychiatric drugs that someone happened to notice caused weight loss. And then we, you know, combine them, but they have side effects. They're not really great drugs. They don't cause that much weight loss. In contrast, Wegovy um, causes depending on the trial you look at anywhere between 15 to 18% loss of body weight and compare that to bariatric surgery, which is the most effective treatment we have that you start off losing about 30% after a few years, you're like 25% down. So that's like the benchmark. That's like that amount of weight loss with bariatric surgery. You reduce your risk of developing diabetes by like 85%. Coronary heart disease is down by like, I forget it's like 50 or 70% your cancer risk goes down, all cause mortality goes down. So there's like huge benefits to reap with that degree of weight loss. And Wegovy gets you most of the way there. And that's a drug that doesn't require surgery. It's totally reversible if you don't like it. And the side effects are mostly positive. That's that's part of the crazy thing cuz I mean any drug has side effects and any drug has negative side effects and so does Wegovy. Um, but Wegovy's side effects typically are, um, gastrointestinal. So people will feel nauseous. Sometimes they'll throw up, but generally what you see is that occurs during the, the scale up of dose, the initial scale up when you first put somebody on it. And then by the time they reach their maintenance dose and they've been on it for a month or two, they don't have any, any negative side effects at all would be the typical, the typical case. And, um, at that point, people's calorie intake goes down by like 25%. Their body weight goes down by something like 15 to 18%. And, um, their risk of coronary heart disease goes down by about a third, similar to statin drugs. Um, their blood sugar is under better control. Um, they feel typically they would report that they have a better relationship with food. So they're not struggling as much or feeling like they're losing control around foods. It really helps a lot with cravings. So, um, I know I sound like I'm kind of gushing, but I just genuinely think that these drugs are awesome. And I think that, um, you know, in an ideal world, we would 
cure all obesity with diet and lifestyle, but it's 2022. The U.S. obesity rate is 43%. Most people with obesity have already tried that. Like, we need to get real about how we're going to address this. And to me, having these kinds of tools is is huge. And this is the first wave. This is this drug is the first one of many others. I shouldn't say many of several others that are like already advancing really well in the clinical development pipeline. So mm-hmm. we're going to have it's it's really expensive right now, um, by the way. But we're going to have more competition soon. The prices are going to start coming down. Um, we are going to have other drugs that are probably more effective that are probably getting up within the next decade, probably getting up to bariatric surgery levels of weight loss. So to me, like, yeah, you look back at the history of weight loss, we've never had anything this good. The only, only thing that compares is bariatric surgery. And a lot of people, you know, it's, it's a surgery and it's a, it's a major abdominal surgery. A lot of people don't want to do that. And if you have some kind of harmful complication, it's not reversible. So bariatric surgery, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to downplay it. I actually think it's also a really good option for some people. But, um, you know, I think there are a lot of people who don't want to have that surgery. And uh, having this drug will be a more attractive option for them. Yeah, absolutely. can you comment a little bit about some of the concerns of, you know, every time, you know, sort of I'll be in the process of, of writing a prescription for clip one agonist, there's always like a flag of certain cancers and, and sometimes that just tanks the whole idea. Um, and I'd love to just kind of hear some solid input on, you know, what's, what's out there as far as the cancer risk Yeah. So, um, there was some initial research in animals suggesting that this class of drugs could increase the risk of pancreatic cancer and thyroid cancer. And, um, essentially those according to, so I'm not an expert on this, but from the experts that I have spoken with, those concerns have been largely discarded. Um, we now have tens of thousands of people who have been through years long randomized controlled trials with these drugs with no signal of increased cancer risk at any site. Um, and we have, uh, monitoring data, observational monitoring data that overall are also reassuring. Basically we have 16 years of data on this drug class, not just semaglutide, but, um, this whole class of drugs has been around for for a while for diabetes management. And so you can look at this this drug class, um, these GLP-1 agonists, and you see that overall the profile is actually very reassuring with regard to cancer in general and also specifically thyroid and and pancreas. But, you know, another thing I want to say about that is Thyroid and pancreatic cancer are not super common cancers. So it's possible that there's some increase in there that we just haven't been able to detect yet because we haven't, you know, looked at enough people or haven't waited long enough. But consequently, because 
you know, if this was a huge effect that mattered a lot that could like really offset the benefits of these drugs, we probably would have seen it if it was a huge effect. And if you look at, we're starting to get analyses that have all cause mortality now as well. So like, how does this drug affect your overall risk of dying, which is, I think, you know, a really important signal to pay attention to if you're trying to say what's the overall cost benefit of this drug. And what you see in people with type two diabetes who are on these drugs, their all cause mortality risk goes down. So whatever, you know, health risks this may carry that have not been detected yet, but maybe there's something flying under the radar, it's still outweighed by the benefit. That's what those yeah. data suggest, at least in people with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, good. That's, that's really good to hear. And I didn't realize there had been so, so many years of uh, research looking at this. Um, so, well, Stefan, this has been really a wonderful talk. I've learned so much and um, just cleared up a lot of confusion and also gave me some hope, you know, that, you know, we're headed in a better direction and also that, um, you know, to kind of understand uh, the balance that we're trying to create um, into the different parts that we need to be thinking about. I would love to just get some take home messages and then kind of hear more about your work that you're doing. Um, I'm a big fan of red pen and I'd love for you to talk about that. I know you're involved with also examine, um, and some charity work that you, uh, charity research work that you do. So I'd love to hear about all that. And, uh, I would encourage anybody listening to this to check out red pen because, you know, when you want to find a resource, that helps you find good information, good health information. That's a great first step um, is to, to go to your RedPed uh, website. So I would love for you to just kind of share like some take home messages and just tell us more about this work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will, I'll focus on RedPen Reviews if, if that's all right. Um, RedPen Reviews is a, um, a website where we publish reviews of popular nutrition books that are the most informative, uh, consistent, and unbiased reviews that you can find of popular nutrition books anywhere. And basically what we've done is created a um, structured review method. So it's a, a specific you know, set of steps that we go through for every single book that we review. We apply the exact same method to it. Um, and that method is administered by people with a master's degree or higher in a relevant field, whether it's nutrition or obesity or something like that. And, um, and then we give it a numerical score in scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. And so basically you can land on a review page and with, within seconds, you can just look at those percentage score bars. It's like, it's like landing on a, Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb page for a movie yeah. within seconds, you can say, okay, how did this score? And you can walk away within seconds with valuable information about the information quality of that book. And not only that, but you can compare these scores between books. So you could say how did you know, I'm interested in a book about, uh, I don't know, low carb. 
how did this book, this low carb book score versus this other book? And that could be part of your decision-making process for what you want to read. Because I know for myself, when I'm trying to figure out what book I want to read next about health or nutrition, it's really hard to know how accurate that book's going to be before you buy it. You don't know what's going to be in there and you can read reviews, but they're idiosyncratic and usually they're not done by experts. They're not checking citations. And then even when you're reading it, it can be hard. Like I can find myself, I think of myself as reasonably knowledgeable about nutrition, but I can be reading a book and I'll be like nodding my head about something. And then I look it up and I'm like, oh no, this is not right. (laughs) So we do all that work for you and we do it in a rigorous way. Yeah. I think that's really helpful for people to know because you can, you can spin a, a study that has nothing to do with um, like humans or reality um, and walk away with this big meaty conclusion. Um, and uh, I love that about red pen reviews because um, you check references and uh, also the, the subject line about the usefulness of the information and how realistic it is to be able to apply the information such so golden i think there is the top the top reviewed book up there right now is by walter willett is that correct yeah eat drink and be healthy yeah i didn't review that one but i I, after seeing that review i was like hmm i should read that book again (laughs) yeah it's a classic um so yeah it's just uh really helpful and um i think also is for anybody writing a book it's a good sort of like way to kind of understand um, what is uh, responsible, you know, what's a, what's a responsible way for, for uh, providing health information because everybody is so confused out there. And I mean, I, I get, you know, people are turning to Facebook groups for their health information and, you know, or, Twitter or all over the place. So it's nice to kind of come to a grounded place where it's like, okay, this is a great place to start and, and, uh, go from there. So, um, well, and any other take home messages before we wrap up for today? Be good to each other. (laughs) I love it. It's, it's really needed right now. Uh, we, we definitely need to hear that message. So, well, thank you so much for, for being here, Stefan. And, uh, you know, just, uh, I, um, I'm really inspired by the work you do and how clear you are and how, we'll, you know, how you approach things. So thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from them. Forward the, the episode to them and... I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode 
on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.